Hello. Good afternoon, students. Is that volume any better? Okay, just, um, okay, I think that's a bit better with the volume. So good afternoon to all of you. I am Dr. Wade. I am with you this afternoon for two hours. We're going to be looking at connective tissue. You will find that there are some parts of the lecture that will go a little faster than others. There are some slides I'll spend a little more time on than others. There will be some busy slides. Usually when they're busy, I give you a take-home message. And there are some slides that we'll read together and some slides that I will just summarize for you and move on, giving you an idea of what to expect out of the next two hours with me in connective tissue. There are also some slides that I will skip outright, like the two I just skipped that have your objectives, that you feel free to look over on your own. Now, we're going to go through this afternoon looking at connective tissue. So, of course, we'll look at the main components of connective tissue. We'll talk about some of the cells that you can find as well in the matrix, the matrix itself, and some clinical significance interspersed throughout. What we're going to look at now are the ones that are in black and the ones that are grayed out, we'll discuss in the next lecture. So, there are four tissue types. There's epithelium, nervous tissue, muscle, and connective tissue. Up? Okay, so we're going to look at four different types of connective tissue. And today, or rather you have looked at four different types of connective tissue. And today we're going to look at connective tissue. So here we have, um, we have an, a definition, if you will, of connective tissue. And it says it's an aggregation of loosely packed cells with a wide intracellular spaces filled with extracellular matrix providing support. And so basically what we're looking at here in connective tissue is understanding that it is the thing that's often overlooked in the slide. And today I'd hope to convince you of its importance. Yes, we think about the epithelium, the nervous tissue, the muscle tissue, but without this connective tissue to connect and tie everything together, we would not be the wonderfully, beautifully complex structures that we are. So the components that we're looking at here are essentially the cells and the extracellular matrix. Usually, though, if you were to ask me or many of my colleagues about connective tissue, will tell you that it's made up of cells, fibers, and ground substance. The difference being that here, using that, different, that definition, we include a few more of the components, and therefore we remember that there are more than two components to the connective tissue. And so, remembering as well, that there's some tissue fluid that exists inside also helping to keep the tissue together. So what's the function? I'm trying to impress upon you the importance of this tissue that I know sometimes is overlooked. This tissue is important for support, which is what the name says, first and foremost, it connects. It's also important for repair. In here, you'll find cells that go on to recreate the tissue should there have been any damage or injury. And of course, it's also very important for our immune system, so it's part of our defense. And here, we also have nutrition, in the form of storage and transport. And so when we think of transport, blood vessels should come to mind for transporting something. We do tend to find quite large amounts of blood vessels in our connective tissue. And of course, the exact, well not exact, because we're not speaking about numbers, but the range from a great number to a less great number will vary depending on the type of connective tissue that we are in. Now, it's that, as the other notation says here, it's directly supplied by the blood, by lymphatic vessels, and nerves. So we can expect all of those. Now, thus far, when you looked at epithelium, you looked at the stroma. That's the 
the big guys, the, sorry, I looked at the parenchyma. The parenchyma is the functional unit. That's the structure that's producing usually a hormone or a secretion. What I'm going to remind you of in this lecture is are the stroma. It's the connective tissue. It's the supporting roles, if you will. So this slide, which you may have seen before, is one of the thyroid gland. And the blue hair represents the parenchyma, which would be our simple cuboidal epithelium. High cuboidal to columnar if it's an active or overactive thyroid. That's just a recap from the lecture before. And we know that this will surround the structure and the follicle and it will produce the substance and the deposits inside. But in between each of these follicles, we have this area of connective tissue where we will find blood vessels. We'll find cells that produce collagen, ground substance, a little bit of tissue fluid, and all of these keep that or keep those follicles packed together inside the thyroid gland. This is just a slide that shows you loose connective tissue. And again, using this one to show you or to introduce some of the components that we'll go on to discuss, because in the following slides, we'll discuss and differentiate loose connective tissue and compare that to dense connective tissue. So what we're looking at here is not so much focusing on the name, but making sure we can pay attention to the different components that we find within here. So of the cells, we can see that we have a few different ones. Here we have a mast cell. We'll discuss him again in a few moments. The plasma cells, the macrophage, adipose cells, or also known as the adipocytes. Site meaning cell. It's a similar term. Here we have an eosinophil, and really, or oh, and lymphocytes. And the big cell that you'll hear of again and again, and I promise you, yet again, is the fibroblast. Become very familiar with this cell. The fibroblast, as we will go on to discuss, is the functional unit, if you will, or the basic functional unit of your connective tissue. It produces more fibroblasts. It produces your fibers, and it will produce as well the ground substance that locks everything together. Some of the fibers that we have, we see three of them here on this slide. Two, actually, I've preempted myself. The two that we see here are collagen and elastic fibers. And even here with this schematic, we can tell that there's a difference. And the difference we see here is that the collagen has the alternated bands that are uh, made up of because of the alpha collagen uh, helices that occur inside, whereas the elastic fibers are straight fibers. And because of the stains used to stain them, will often appear black or quite dark, again seen here on this slide. They're both very long fibers extending from one end of the slide to the other. And just because it goes from one end to the other does not mean that we are seeing the beginning or the end. In particular, the collagen fibers, they are known to be fibers of indeterminate length, which means it's so long we are aware that we have sectioned somewhere in the length of the fiber and we have neither the beginning nor the end. This is important because that's part of our strength and our makeup. The other two structures on here would be an artery in red and a blood, or sorry, a vein in blue. And this slide on the side is a wet mount prep. It's just been teased out a little bit and stained and mounted on a slide and looked at under the microscope. And this slide is beautiful because we can appreciate these darker or basophilic structures. These are the nuclei. And at first, you might be tempted to overlook them just because of the sheer number of them, but that's what helps us identify the slide. Looking at the basophilic structures, you say, wow, there are a lot of cells in here. We know there are a lot of cells because we're seeing all the nuclei. A second look will also show us that we have a cumbersome structure, and on a closer look at that, there are some smaller dots inside. That's a blood vessel with red blood cells. 
What we can see as well on here are two different types of fibers, strands, if you will. One is a darker set that looks pretty long, goes from one side down to the other, it seems to be crossed by another one here. Those are elastic fibers. And the darker ones, or rather the browner appearing ones, because they're not really darker, but they are definitely thicker, these would be the collagen fibers. We'll go on and we'll see a few different examples of these, and we'll be able to better piece them out and have a good handle of this information at the end of the two lectures. So the fibroblasts, I promised you, you'll see them. It's the most common cell in connective tissue. Their function is, as we mentioned before, to synthesize the fibers and the ground substance of the actual tissue. Now, when we see these cells, the first of them, or the most active of them, is the fibroblast. When they're a little mature, the tissue has been fully formed. There's not as much regeneration or formation of other cells or fibers. Then the cells become a little flattened, they're said to be inactive or less active, and they are now known as the fibrocytes. And so this is a very good schematic that serves to compare the two different cells side by side. We can see here the fibroblasts. It is sort of spindle-shaped, but the nucleus is bigger and showing that it's more active, whereas the fibrocyte, it's more flattened, it's spindle-shaped, and the nucleus is flattened, smaller or darker, than you would have seen before. We don't usually ask you to differentiate on a slide between a fibroblast and a fibrocyte, although I will show you some differences in just a few moments. But it's an important concept for you to understand, especially looking at the word fibroblast. Blast, when you hear that suffix, blast tells you that you get more. So a fibroblast, the word fibro sounds like fiber, hopefully, and so it tells you that you're getting more of something. Indeed, you do get more fibers, but you also get more cells, if necessary, and also the ground substance. The myofibroblasts that we'll have a look at on the electron micrograph are present in wound healing as well as normally present in other areas of the body. But they're particularly important in wound healing. They look almost like the fibroblasts. We'll see a, com a comparison of them in just a few moments as well. The difference, though, they have actin filaments. And so they will usually come together to uh, have a contractile effect on the wound, helping to oppose the ends quite easily, if it's a small wound. As you know, larger wounds need assistance and closure. There are two different cell types that we go through. The permanent residence of the connective tissue, and as well, there's a transient population with cells that may come in or may leave or may appear in greater amounts depending on what's going on. So the development as well of connective tissue is from the mesodermal layer, that's the middle layer of that trilaminar disc that you may have seen before. Here's our list of our permanent residents of connective tissue. And as well, we see here we have our list of the transient cell population of connective tissue. As promised, here is the slide that shows us the differences between the embryoblast and sorry, the fibroblast and the fibrocyte. So schematic A shows us that we have lots of pink seen here on the slide. All these areas of pink are not just a random background. These are collagen fibers present here on the slide. So we're seeing a slide with lots of collagen. 
There are the basophilic structures that are screaming at us, but before I get to that one, I'd also like to show you that there are areas on the slide that are white. Those areas are artifact. They're areas where the sectioning may not have been as smooth, and so the tissue separated, whatever the case may be. Now, there's a separation of the tissue that has occurred either in harvesting, staining, mounting, but not had occurred in real life. Now, again, the highlight of this slide, if we look, are the nuclei here of the fibroblasts. And this lets us know that these are very young fibroblasts, again, possibly found within the embryonic region or embryonic stage, because here we have lots of growth and building. Looking down at uh, schematic B, it's in the adult stage now, when we do still have the oval appearance of the, of the fibroblasts. We know we will have cytoplasmic extensions that will give that the spindle shaped as well. But the most significant or prominent change is where we see schematic C, we're able to appreciate that the nuclei are flattened here and look very different than we had seen from A or even B. This indicates to us that the fibrocytes, or somehow the cell, is less active, which lets us know that we see here an adult structure that does not require constant regeneration. This slide, which is an electron micrograph of the fibroblast, shows us a few other features. Here we see that we have collagen fibrils located outside of the cell, as the notice tells us. So then therefore that must be that this structure here is part of our cell, as this structure here is part of yet another cell. So from this point to this point, that's the spindle aspect of one fibroblast. We're not seeing the nucleus of that fibroblast, but it would be somewhere down to this region. But of the fibroblast just adjacent to it, we see again from here to here, this is the extension of the spindle, but we do have a caption here of a section of the nucleus of one fibroblast. We're also able to appreciate that we have the rough endoplasmic reticulum in here, and of course they will go on to produce the proteins that are needed, one of which are the collagen fibers, which are a protein in nature. So we expect to find rough endoplasmic reticulum within here, as well as the Golgi, extensive Golgi apparatus, and what we see here, the euchromatic nucleus, which lets, the, which lets us know that this cell is an active cell. Here's a comparison of our fibroblast and the myofibroblast. Again, by the addition of the word or the prefix myo, it lets us know there's something in here that's muscle-like. And so this cell is not a muscle cell, but it may sometimes look like a muscle cell, a smooth muscle cell specifically. That's because of the presence of the actin filaments within it. There's also the, the action of the myofibroblast, which is a contractile action, so it has the activity like muscle, even though it is not itself a muscle cell. Here we can see that we have the nucleus of that myofibroblast, and note that it's quite different than or rather, this is the entire cell of the myofibroblast, and it's quite different in structure than we had seen over here with the fibroblast itself. One of the things that makes it different is this patch here that we're seeing, and yet another one over here, where we have the actin filaments laid down inside the cell that gives it this wiggly, or uh, wiggly is the most technical term I can come up with at the moment, so we'll stick with that for now. It gives it that wiggly appearance. It's not as smooth as we had seen with the fibroblast. It'll come back to me. Moving on to a different type of cell. We have here the adipocytes or adipocytes. 
They're also known as the adipose cells. And um, adipose cells can be either unilocular or multilocular, which means it has one lobule of fat or many lobules of fat. What you're looking at here are the unilocular fat cells, which are also known as the white fat or white adipose tissue, or cell rather. If we have a collection of these all together, then it becomes adipose tissue. The characteristic feature of this adult cell is that you see a thin rim of cytoplasm in the middle of what is essentially a white droplet or white space if it's been stained with H&E. And at one side, we have that basophilic nucleus. And the nucleus is said to be uh, peripherally, peripherally located. So the story is that in the building or the development of this cell, it would have started looking like just any other cell with cytoplasm dispersed throughout. However, the purpose of the cell is to produce and store lipid. And so the lipid starts off being produced in small uh, regions, and eventually they coalesce into one large lipid droplet, which essentially pushes the cytoplasm to the periphery, or the organelles are pushed to the periphery, the nucleus is also pushed to the periphery. This is supposed to, the purpose of the ring here is because it's said to have a signet ring appearance. It's a term that we've used again and again. Some people find it useful, some people don't. But for those who may find it useful, if you think of the nucleus being pushed off to one side, that white appearing middle, that thin rim, it reminds us of a, of a ring that has a protrusion or a signet or a, a protrusion at one side. Now, also to remind you that we have used H&E here for this, uh, this slide, as H&E is the most commonly used stain for histology. When we use the hemotoxin and eosin to stain the tissues, we have to apply alcohol in the preparation. When the alcohol is applied, the fat droplet washes off, which is why it's left completely white inside. There is a rich blood supply to the adipocytes, and as well, it's a major source of energy. Now, the comparison here shows us the light microscopic images. In, or in the slide that's labeled A, these images, the lipid has been washed off in this image, as we had discussed before. But however, in B, the lipid has been visualized with the use of a different fixative. So there's a different, or different approach to the preparation of the slide that has been used with ox, uh, osmium and is then stained with an oil red O. So it means that now, instead of having a big white space, we're now able to actually appreciate that there is that fat droplet inside. In contrast, we have multilocular adipocytes. And so it means now that instead of one big droplet in the middle, what we have is an arrangement where there are many droplets inside the cytoplasm. So that does not give us the plain white appearance that we had seen before. Instead, it's going the wrong direction, it gives us this sort of foamy appearance, if you will. And that's because we have now the different areas that have the adipocytes inside interspersed with the cytoplasm. And so again, in preparation with H&E, which is what we've used here to view this slide, you will find that the fat is washed off or the lipid is washed off and you're left with pockets of nothing surrounded by cytoplasm. So it gives you a sort of a foamy appearance to, to, the, to the slide. The difference here again is that the nucleus is not pushed off to the side and so it's usually found centrally. It may be slightly difficult to locate on the slide because you're not sure one cell begins or where the other ends. 
And so going by that appearance of the alternating uh, lost lipid and cytoplasm will help you quite a bit. But the thing with the multilocular adipocytes, or the brown fat as it's called, that's very important, is that it's seen in neonates in specific regions of the body. And neonates do not regulate very well after, when they are born, and so it is very helpful to have that brown fat in areas of the neck or the abdomen because it helps to keep them warm. The main function of multilocular adipocytes is heat production. Here we have an electron micrograph that's showing us two adipocytes side by side. And what we're seeing here is an understanding and appreciation of the fact we have the cytoplasm of the adipocyte. It's labeled very helpfully here for us lipid. This is a very high magnification, so we have a, an inset between the two. We see on the other side, it's also labeled a lipid, and we appreciate that we have the cytoplasm with mitochondria inside. And in between the two, we have the presence of the connective tissue. F here lets us know that we have fibroblasts. So again, this highlights for us the appearance of, or the understanding, that the lipid pushes the cytoplasm towards the periphery. Macrophages are also part of our population of cells, and they are part of the permanent population. They're derived from monocytes. They are then part of our immune system. They're from the white blood cell line. They are in the bloodstream. They are known as monocytes when they differentiate and move into the tissue. Or when they move into the tissue, they differentiate, and they are then known as macrophages. And they may take the name depending on which tissue that they're in. So in the liver, they're known as Kupfer cells. In the brain, they're known as the microglia. Um, and in the bone, they're known as the osteoclasts. Interestingly, in the lung, they're also known as the um, alveolar macrophages, which makes sense. It's found in the alveoli. The other name for it is also the dust cell, which also makes quite a lot of sense to me because when you're inhaling, you're walking around, it may be a bit dusty. These cells come on to take up the dust. Obviously, it's not dust alone, but we've all been in a situation where there's been some dust. The interesting thing about the term macrophages is that it's one of the largest white blood cells that you will find. Phage lets us know that it's eating, and that's exactly what the function is. It's phagocytic. It will engulf the offending material. Macro, of course, tells us that it's large. But note that in the brain, it becomes the microglia. And automatically, that lets you know that while it's a large cell in other tissues, when it gets to the brain, because the brain cells, the nerve cells there are so long, it's actually smaller in comparison. So it's known as the microglia. If we go on to the electron micrograph seen here, just pointing out for us some of the different features that we can use to identify the macrophage. And here we can appreciate that we have the cytoplasmic extensions, the podocyte, sorry, the cytoplasmic extensions of the macrophages that will engulf the vesicles and, and take them in. We can see here that we have the nucleus. There's quite a large nucleus taking up a large portion of the cell. And again, that's how we will identify that. The nucleus is said to have an irregular outline. And on some slides, you may see that it has a kidney-shaped appearance where the indent is by the, or the indent is caused by the presence of the prominent Golgi apparatus inside. The mast cells are also a very important cell, and very many of you may have encountered the effects of the mast cell before. 
They also originate in bone marrow, and they share the same precursor as do basophils. The difference is that basophils remain in the bloodstream, whereas mast cells differentiate and they become, or they move into tissue, the connective tissue. And so when they, when they migrate into the connective tissue, they proliferate and accumulate the cytoplasmic granules that make them functional. So, if, sorry, let's just go back a little bit. If we go back here, looking at the uh, mast cell, here we see it. And we're able to appreciate that the nucleus is quite a round, well-circumscribed nucleus, sort of in the middle of the cell. But what we can really appreciate are the granules that we see around the mast cell. And there may be times where the nucleus might be obscured by the presence of the granules, as we see in this slide here, and sorry, in this cell and this cell. But you can identify the mast cell by the presence of many basophilic granules within it. And the function of this cell, having said that very many of you may have met the cell or the effects of the cell before, the function of the cell is that the granules are the source of vasoactive mediators. The granules that we have contained within the mast cells are histamine, heparin, and the chemotactic mediators to attract monocytes, neutrophils, eosinophils, circulating in the blood to the site of mast cell activation. What does all of that mean, having read that together? Depending on where you're from or what your environmental allergen is, if you do in fact have one of those, for some people it's pollen, that's a common scenario. You go out in the, to the outside, you want to enjoy the sun, the flowers are in bloom. Unfortunately, that looks very pretty, but it's not something that your system can tolerate. And within a few minutes of being outside, you start to, your nose gets a little itchy, you begin to sneeze. Eventually, at the end of the day, you realize that your nose is quite congested and it becomes difficult to breathe. Or at least someone says to you, are you feeling well? Your voice sounds a little different. Your helpful mast cells in the region of your nasal mucosa would have realized or detected the pollen and said, this is a problem and this must be eradicated. And so the histamine then releases its factors. What that does is it calls into the area um, more of the other white blood cells that are around and causes the blood vessels as well to be leaky so that we have a greater movement of the white blood cells from the blood vessels into the surrounding tissue. The heparin in there as well is good to help with the anticoagulation of the blood because we want to make sure the blood moves quite freely. And again, that sounds great when we think of the white blood cells moving, the immune system at work, except for the fact that tissue fluid also moves into, or fluid also moves into the tissue from the blood vessels. That's what causes your congestion. So the very helpful mast cells are very helpful when there is a problem, but it can be overactive, and that leads to states of anaphylactic shock, where the swelling occurs not only in the nasal mucosa, but can also occur within the trachea, bronchioles, etc. More specifically in the bronchioles, because those are a smaller diameter. The histamine also causes contraction of smooth muscles, and so that causes part of the problem with uh, anaphylactic reactions. Here we have an electron micrograph of that mast cell. And the uh, superior or the higher image showing us here the nucleus, and we can see that there are some granules around. The one at the bottom shows us that there are more granules. It's just showing us two different stages or two different types, if you will. 
But in both of them, we can appreciate that we have very many granules seen without, and or rather within, and the note here reminds us the granules contain histamine and heparin. Now, heparin, which is a sulfated glycosaminoglycan, has a very interesting reaction to toluidine blue when we stain the mast cell with it. When the mast cell is stained with the toluidine blue, there's a slight color change where instead of being blue, like the dye, we find that the cell looks purplish-red. And I've had a student say before, are you sure that's purple? Maybe not all of it, but if you look at the edges over here, you can see that there's a reddish appearance to this. It's not purely blue. And that can be more prominent depending on the age of the slide, the amount of light you use, etc. But it's an interesting arrangement or concept to remember. And here we have the term metachromasia. Meta being, as we say here, beyond chroma pointing to color. So it is beyond the color of the dye and therefore beyond the color that you would have expected. Of the transient population of cells now, the first one we will discuss are the lymphocytes. The lymphocytes we see here are small cells. There's scant amount of cytoplasm around, which means that the nucleus looks particularly large inside the cell. So we see that it has a thin rim of cytoplasm around. Again, this is very different from our adipocyte because in the adipocyte, what we saw was a huge amount of space, or white, in the middle, which represented the washed-off lipid droplet. But what we do see here is a nucleus that takes up the entire, or most, rather, of the structure. And the next note tells us that it's a condensed basophilic nucleus. From the lymphocytes, we get two different types of cells, B cells and T cells. We'll go on to have a look at uh, B cells, or rather the plasma cells, in a moment, and they develop from the B lymphocytes. Just to finish off this slide with a look at the electron micrograph image of the lymphocyte, we can see here we have, again, the nucleus, and we see the cytoplasm externally. So the plasma cell is an interesting cell. It does give us our immunoglobulins, but note it secretes a single class of immunoglobulin. When we talk about the plasma cells, usually you hear the description of a clock face nucleus, or a cartwheel nucleus, or some will say a soccer ball nucleus, as you can tell. In medicine, in anatomy, and histology, we like to name things for the familiar. It helps us also remember what we're looking at. But why is that? Why does it have that appearance? We remember the term euchromatic points to a nucleus that is active, and usually the nucleus looks very light. We remember as well that heterochromatic points to a nucleus that is less active, and usually looks quite dark in comparison. And here now, we have a nucleus that's showing us both light and dark areas. The alternating appearances of the chromatin gives us that cartwheel nucleus, or clock face nucleus, or the soccer ball nucleus, whichever designation you prefer. The reason is, because these cells produce only one type of immunoglobulin, only certain parts of the nuclear material are required constantly those parts will be unraveled, those parts will undergo changes to produce the proteins, and the rest of it is not needed, and so remains condensed. And that gives us that alternating light and dark appearances inside the nucleus. We remember as well that it will have a basophilic cytoplasm because of the increased amount of 
rough endoplasmic reticulum that's needed inside. And here we have, again, an electron micrograph that's showing us that alternating appearance of the euchromatic and heterochromatic areas of the nucleus, and it shows us as well a prominent nucleolus. We're going to go on to eosinophils. Eosinophils, remember, was one of the, well, they were rather, one of the cells that were named in the list of cells that reacts or responds to the call of mast cells. And these eosinophils, usually if you have a blood smear, they're in a very small percentage, and their main function is thought to be to kill, or it is considered to be to kill the parasitic worms. So if you have an increase in eosinophil count, you suspect that the person has a worm infestation. There will be other things in the history that would cause you to look for an eosinophil count, but it's something to remember to twin together. Now, when we think about eosinophilic, we have to break down the word again. We remember eosin from the eosin dye, philic, philic meaning loving, so in that it loves the eosin dye. That dye is itself an acidic dye, which means that the structures that it stains are basic. The appearance that we'll get from this slide or from this cell are very many eosinophilic red or pinkish looking granules. You may see, as seen here, a condensed bilobed nucleus. That's showing you the light micrograph image above. You see here, nucleus, nucleus, very thin amount of the nuclear material joining them, giving us a bilobe nucleus. Now, I try to include this electron micrograph image because it's a beautiful reminder of the fact that when we section these cells, we don't whisper to the tissue, line up perfectly so we can section them. And so we get them in whatever state they're in. So we say that it's a bilobe nucleus, and yet I show you this electron micrograph where it looks like there's a nucleus on one side and a nucleus on the other. This is just because of the plane of sectioning. It reminds you that when you're looking at a slide and you would like to decide what type of cell you have, you should look for more than one of them. You should try to find the characteristics over more than one of them, and that will give you a clearer understanding of what the cell is that you have. And then for each one, you look at the nucleus, look at the cytoplasm, look at the size of the cell and the nucleus as well, look at the extensions, etc., etc. The granules, how much granules, what color of the granules. There are different things you must look at overall. And as we mentioned before, it's phagocytosis of anti-antigen complexes and as well killing of the parasitic worms. So there are other connective tissue cells. We won't discuss all of them here today. You'll discuss the rest of them as you go through your lecture series. You'll have separate lectures on blood, cartilage, and bone. And here you'll see that the blood cells, they are erythrocytes and leukocytes. Some of the leukocytes we've discussed today, but we'll go into greater discussion and detail about them later. Here we can see we have a peripheral smear, and we can appreciate that we have the different white blood cells and also the presence of the red blood cells along here, rather the erythrocytes and the leukocytes. The cartilage cells... This is actually mislabeled, I'm sorry, this should have been two and this would have been three, because this, in fact, is cartilage. So to say it again, this one seen here with that bluish-purplish stain is cartilage. And so it would correspond with number two, where it talks about cartilage cells. Here we have the cartilage. We know that the functional unit of this cell here, of this slide, is tissue, 
is the chondroblasts. So the chondroblasts will produce the collagen type 2 fibrils, it will produce the ground substance that traps everything, and eventually, once the fibers and the ground substance has been produced, these cells become less active and they are known as the chondrocytes. Here in this one that should be labeled 3 to correspond with bone cells, what we have here is mature or well-developed bone. And remember that there are three types of cells that go on to produce the bone tissue. They are the osteoblasts, osteoclasts, and osteocytes. I think I have a question coming up. I also have a countdown, so I'll bring that up in just a few seconds. To make sure that you're awake and still with me, I know it's probably been a long afternoon. Has everyone clicked in so far? So, yep, there we go, our chondroblasts, because remember this is our, there are further classifications you have to go on into to remember that this is the collagen, sorry, the cartilage tissue, but having just looked at it, remember that this is our cartilage, we're looking here at the cells that have become less active, so they are the chondrocytes, however, the ones, the cells that would be responsible for building and growing this tissue would be the chondroblasts. So the extracellular matrix that we've talked a little bit about before, what's found in the extracellular matrix? In there we find the fibers, uh, which are collagen fibers, reticular fibers, and elastic fibers, and as well ground substance, the glycosaminoglycans, glycoproteins, proteoglycans, and some tissue fluid. Now, the collagen type fibers, this says there are various types. This is true. There are very, very many types of collagen fibers. I do have a slide where we discuss a few of them, and we'll read that through together as well. But remember, the first type of collagen that you'll find is collagen type 1. It's the most ubiquitous. It's found almost everywhere. It's the one that we had seen on that first schematic as well. It's the one that's wavy. It's of indeterminate length. It's a very strong one. We find that in our ligaments and our tendons. Let's go through, and we'll talk a little bit about the other fibers. And so we see here that with collagen, it's fibril-forming, fibril-associated, it's network-forming, it has anchoring types. Note that it is acidophilic, as we had mentioned before. And so when you look at a slide, especially of dense regular connective tissue, you're often tempted to ignore the slide because there's just so much pink on there. That must be the stain, it's not anything else. But in fact, it is the stain, but the stain has been taken up by a very important component of the tissue. It's been taken up by a collagen fibers, which are protein in nature. And so protein being basic, it loves the acidic dye, which is why it's said to be acidophilic. 
Remember that the collagen uh, type 1 structure and formation is well described. I do have a slide for you coming up, I think, in just two slides on that one. It's one of the very busy ones. We don't focus over much on all of the steps of collagen synthesis in this lecture, but I'll highlight to you a step that is a very important step. And again, I'll tell you later as we go through at the end of the second lecture why that step is quite so important. One of the other things to remember in terms of the synthesis of collagen is that there's an intracellular component and an extracellular component. So for the intracellular, we have the procollagen being formed inside. And once that procollagen is formed inside, it then gets sent outside of the cell into the extracellular region for assembly. What we're seeing here is the actual arrangement, or the presence rather, of the collagen fibers. We can see here on this schematic or this image, rather, tissue slide labeled A, we can see that acidophilic presence here in pink. And these are all the collagen fibers. This is quite a high magnification. It's a very small window of small view. So we're not even beginning to think about looking at the lengths of the collagen fibers here. What we're going to appreciate is that they are present. And we see as well the spindle-shaped nucleus of the fibroblast hair and hair. We remember that we have living tissue. We said in connective tissue is quite well vascularized, and so we have that reminder here as well of a little blood vessel. Reminding you yet again that we have white spaces in here that are artifact. They are unnatural introductions of space in the tissue. They did not exist in real life. But I would like you to use this artifact to remind yourself that something else needs to be added or discussed in talking about connective tissue. We must remember that there should also be the ground substance mentioned in the discussion. If we look here at this electromyograph, it reminds us of what we had looked at before when we focused mainly on the fibroblasts, of which there are two different cells. But we're looking now just outside of the fibroblast, and we're seeing the collagen fibrils. And here we have in schematic or in tissue A, in slide A, we have more of a longitudinal view. But here in the electron micrograph, we have a cross-sectional view. Continuing on with the collagen fiber structure, the structure here shows the increasing order of the structure from the collagen fibril that's being uh, formed or the fibrils that come together. Then we appreciate that we have the collagen molecule, and these molecules come together to give us the triple helix. Note that it is these alternating helices of the alpha helices that give us this banding pattern that we see both on electron micrograph and as well in the light micrograph. So I did promise you a very busy slide. This is the very busy slide. It tells us here from 1 to 10 that these structures are intracellular, and the structures from 11 to 14 are extracellular. The thing that I would like you to remember is step number four, that's an intracellular process. And it corresponds with the clinical correlate that we'll go on to discuss a little bit later. And so I'd like you to focus on the fact that step four discusses the hydroxylation of proline and lysine residues, and that vitamin C is required. So we need vitamin C for the hydroxylation of proline and lysine. Now we are going to read through this slide together. It talks about the distribution of collagen. Your textbook will give you very many more types of collagen that you can find, but we're going to focus on this, uh, the, the first five types, if you will, and look at where they can be found and as well what their functions are. 
So the type 1 collagen, remember we had said it's the most ubiquitous, we find it almost everywhere. And it provides tensile strength, which again we had sort of gathered from the fact that it's a fiber that's so very long. We know that we find it in bone, in tendon, related to the, to the teeth, and also in skin. For type 2 collagen, that's, we find this related to hyaline and elastic cartilage. And here, they're usually present as fibrils. Type 3 collagen is also known as reticular fibers, and we'll see that again when we discuss a few more of them. Those reticular fibers, they form the basement membrane, oh sorry, they can form the reticular lamina of the basement membrane, as well as their own fibers, which have their own function. We'll discuss that in just a moment. The type 4 collagen you find in the basal lamina. And when you have a particularly prominent or thick basal lamina, such as in the kidney, then it's, very, uh, it's a very prominently stained region that you can visualize. So each of the molecule binds to laminin in that region, laminin being a proteoglycan. Type 5 collagen we find in the amnion and the chorion in the fetus and also in muscle and tendon sheets, so the external wrappings. So here are places where you can actually find the different fibers, having listed them. Now we have the slides that represent them. And what I'd like to, going slightly out of order, what I would like to show you first and foremost is type 3 collagen that is also reticular. So it has its own name of reticular fibers. Note that in comparison to the collagen that you had seen before, which is very long, quite thick, wavy, showing banding patterns, even on this slide, this is a fairly low magnification, we can appreciate here that we have very thin and very short areas of reticular fibers. And so the reticular fibers are different in that they are short and thin. Reminder of type 4 being found in the basement membrane. And we can find that we have large amounts of uh, carbohydrates in the basement membrane as well. Uh, and so that stains quite well periodic acid shift. I'll come back onto that in just a moment. This slide is the recap slide for us that shows us the things that we had seen before with the wet mount prep and also looking at the different cells and fibers that we had first seen when we talked about them. And here we can see that alternating band of the collagen fibrils as well. We remember that we'll get those in a dense connective tissue. So we have particular fibers, and we mentioned before that they are primarily type 3 collagen. I did say to you that they are short and thin, and here we have yet another term added to that. They are short, thin, and branching. And so if we look at this slide, first we have this, uh, this schematic here, and we can appreciate that this is a very short line. It's very thin, and at, at this point, at this juncture, it does branch into different areas. We can also see that here on this slide, which is a fairly low magnification, able to appreciate we have this short fiber. It's quite thin, and here it doesn't actually branch at this end, but it does branch at the other end. Yet another fiber that we can see following this arrow down all the way, we find that it branches quite quickly after we have started. So unlike collagen type 1 that we acknowledged, was very long, extended from one area of the slide to the other, even at a low magnification, we were unable to find the beginning or the end. Here, we can see that we have fiber that is short, thin, and branches quite frequently. They're found in organs with large volume changes, and also they're the first type of collagen that's synthesized during wound healing. 
And reticular fibers are, when they form the tissue, they're said to be of a scaffolding type. And so usually I will say, if you can think of the scaffolding that you see outside of the building, that reticular fibers will be just like the scaffolding that you will find. And the people that are working on the scaffolding will be the different cells or components that exist in and amongst them, which is a good image to think of if you have wound healing. There's building, something's happening, something constructing. So you need your scaffolding to occur for that. Sorry, the last uh, notation to mention is very important, that the reticular fibers, because they have a high amount of carbohydrate, they stain positive with periodic acid shift, which gives them a magenta or purplish appearance. They also stain quite well with silver, and therefore they are known to be a gyrophilic. I have about three more minutes by that clock, I think, before we go out for a break. So let's just go on with another slide or two. Here we have the elastic fibers. There are three different types of elastic fibers. And in fact, they are first formed, second formed, and third formed, third being the most adult or the, most, the best developed form. Note that they are very like collagen in that they also have glycine and proline, but they also have the difference of desmosine and isodesmosine inside the elastic fibers. The fibrillin is an important aspect because we will go on to discuss a condition for which there is a defect in the gene that produces fibrillin, which of course lets us know that there's a defect in the actual formation of the elastic fibers. So they won't function as we expect them to function. And here, the function of the elastic fibers, we know that they stretch. Remember, the important part is the recoil, the fact that they can go back to their original length with no damage. And so hence, they are found in the large arteries, the elastic arteries. They're also found in the vocal ligaments and the bronchi, which allows some stretching as well. There's a special staining, or there are special stains that are required for the elastic fibers. Three of those are orsine, resorcin, and verhofst as well. And those different ones, um, you will be expected to know. But very often when we speak about the elastic fibers, we'll tell you, or elastic tissue, we'll say to you, it has been stained with an elastic stain meaning one of these three. The stains that we tend to focus quite a bit on are the H&E, if there's been stained with silver, such as the reticular fibers, or as well different stains for um, other stains of connective tissues, such as Mason's or Mallory's trichrome. Um, in the interest of going for the break, and I have a question, this is just showing us the fact that we have the elastic fibers and showing you the desmosine and the lysine, how they link up to help form the function. Let's just attempt this question before we go out for a break, and then we'll come back at 4 o'clock. So we threw out the list, and we discussed it for a little bit. I should bring up the countdown. But reminding you that while the list is a very long list for different types of collagen fibers and where they are found, there are some that you will be expected to know.
Well, I think that means that everyone's finished with that one, so we can advance the countdown. Yeah, definitely. Oh, I did have another question. Once you've clicked in and you're free to go for your break, we'll start back at 4 o'clock. <laughs>